So, so anyway, let me, let me get started today. I want to start off uh, telling you about uh, an event that happens uh, in the Old Testament, specifically in Numbers 13 and even more specifically in a place called Kadesh Barnea, which, which I'm sure that's on your travel list. But um, if it's not, let me tell you why this place is important. When the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God released them from Egypt and gave them freedom instead of slavery, uh, that started what was a, about a two-year process of them making it from, the, from Egypt to the promised land, to the land that God had promised them. Now, keep in mind, God had told Moses and told the nation that this land is theirs. He even told them the people living there, and he listed the tribes and the nations of people that were living there. He said, I will give you that land. And so they traveled, uh, they traveled to get there, and they're they're in this place called Kadesh Barnea, which is just on the outside of that promised land. And God told Moses to send spies into the land to see what the land was like, so they would know the topography, to see what the people were like, because God had already told them who was there, but not where they are and how big they are, and, you know, like how big is their town, how big is their village, uh, how are they scattered out, and to see what the vegetation was like. What was the, what was the produce like? What was the... The, the fruit of the land like. And so Moses sent these spies into the land and they were gone for 40 days, going north, south, east, and west. They covered almost every square mile of that land to see what it was like. And they saw the, they saw the, the land and they saw that it was a really good, fertile land and they saw the, the vegetation of the land. As a matter of fact, they brought with them when they came back uh, this, this, this uh, bunch of grapes that were so big that two guys had to carry it on a pole, right? I mean, it was huge just to show, man, this is good land. But then these spies did something that changed the whole narrative and it changed the whole story. It even changed the flow of the nation of Israel. It changed their history because these spies said a word that changed everything. They said the word, but. They said the land is plentiful. The vegetation, the fruit is awesome, but. Now, here's the deal with that word, but. Anytime somebody says that, it means everything I said before it, don't pay attention to. What I say after it is the real thing. And they said, the land is great. The vegetation is great. But Moses, the people there are huge. Not only are they huge, there's way too many of them. There's no way we can enter that land. And what they did is, is it started fear. Being in the camp started exposing fear was there. But there was one guy who stood up. And even though these, these spies were, were saying this, there was one guy who was with those spies that traveled. And he saw the land and he saw that it was good. And he saw the vegetation and saw that it was amazing. But he stood up. And he said something very different than the rest of the spies because he stood up and there was no but in his comment. He said, yes, the people are there, but God has given us this land. And where God has promised, he will deliver. And so he stood up and he said that, 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 that we can take this land, that with God there is no but. And if the rest of the spies had one word, so did he, and his word was trust. 
He trusted what the Lord said. Caleb believed that God meant what he said, that when he promised something, he would deliver it. Well, the other spies, what they did is they continued to talk about the people that were there. And here's what they did. Here's, here, here's what people do when they don't want to do what God is asking them to do is they start making stuff up. Right, and so, so these spies, they start, they start telling these exaggerations and they, and they draw from the myths of Israel and they, they said, man, these are giants like the ones that we've seen in the ancient days. That's, that's who the people are. They're, they're, they're way too, literally too big. They're giants. We can't take them. And when they did, then, then, then Caleb and and now Joshua, this other guy, stood up with him, and he was one of the spies too. And they stood up to try and remind the people of God's promise and even his very presence. And they stood up and said, the Lord is with us, nation. Do not be afraid. We can take this. Now imagine how your Old Testament would be different if the nation said, yes, we trust. We would have no stories of the 40 years of wandering because they would have entered the promised land within months of them leaving Egypt. But instead, even with Jacob, and I mean, even with Joseph, I mean, what's his name? Joshua, even with Joshua. Don't worry, I do this with my kids too. Even with Joshua and even with Caleb telling them to trust the Lord, the nation of Israel instead chose fear. And they chose not to enter the land. And that decision of the nation is what, God said, you, this generation, cannot enter the promised land and sent them on a 38-year journey through the desert for the sole purpose of that generation to die off so that a new generation that had faith in God, led by Joshua, would enter the nation with that faith and with that trust. But not all the generation had to perish in the desert. Because Caleb and Joshua did. As a matter of fact, this is, what Ka- this is what God said about Caleb. It's in Numbers 14, 24. We'll have it up there. It says, because my servant Jacob has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. So because, J- because Caleb had this wholehearted faith, he got to enter into the promised land that God had given. And what I, the reason I start off with this event is because Caleb shows us what a wholehearted faith looks like. And what, what did Caleb do to show us his wholeheartedness? He trusted the Lord. He trusted God's promises. He trusted God's word. And that trust overflowed to his actions. That trust in who God is is why he was able to stand up before the nation and say, stop, don't be afraid. God has given this because he trusted who God is and he trusted what God said. And here's why this is important. We're gonna be in James chapter one, verses 19 through 27 today. And if you need a Bible, there's one in front of you that you can use. It's on page 851. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you. Or like Carol said, we're also in the Bible app and you can find us there. This is why this is important. In our study in the book of James, we're seeing what a wholehearted faith looks like, right? That's why we've called this series Wholehearted, because that's what we're seeing. And here's the deal with James. James is is almost like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's like, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. And so there's a lot of doing in the book of James. 
As a matter of fact, in today's passage, he's going to tell us to be doers of God's word. But the truth of Caleb's wholehearted faith shows us what James is talking about. And it shows us what James is trying to show us time and time again. That the doing of our faith starts, starts with trusting the God of our faith. The doing of our faith starts with the trusting of God in our faith. In other words, our wholehearted actions start with a wholehearted faith. Another way to think about it is, is your doing in your faith is an overflow of your trusting of your faith. And as we, as we talk about this today and as we dive into our passage, like I said, there's gonna be plenty of to-dos. As a matter of fact, the very first verse, verse 19, that we're gonna go over, you're gonna be done, right? Because there's just enough in that one verse for you to be like, I need to do better, I need to do more, I need to do the wrong thing less. So I'm gonna get you on verse 19. And then we still have all the way to verse 27 to go. So, so, so you're gonna be in a position where your actions don't line up with what God is saying. I want you to consider something in that moment. I want you to consider that you don't have a doing problem, you have a trust problem. And because what I want you to hear clearly today is that your response today isn't to go do more. Your response today is to trust more where you're not. Because here's what I know. If you trust God where you're not trusting God, you're gonna do what he wants you to do. If you start trusting him where you're not, your actions are gonna change. And I want your doing more to come from this place of trusting more. And so the question I want you to ask today as we go through this passage is this, where do I need to trust? Where do I need to trust in God's ways and God's word instead of my way, my word? Well, let's dive in. And let's see what James tells us to do and not to do. Um, and like I said, this first verse, it's going to get us all, all right? Listen to this. <clears throat> verse 19. James says this, know this, my beloved brothers. Now, this word means brothers and sisters, so girls, you're not out, all right? This, this still applies. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. See? Right there. Right out of the gate. Right, he hits strong. Anybody in here need to listen more and talk less? Yeah. Anybody in here need to have less anger in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Like, he got us. He got us all. I need to be better listening. I need to be, I need to be slow to speak. I need to, to have less anger. And so remember, this isn't a doing problem. This is a trust problem. And so what James is going to do is he's going to walk us through what we need to trust in. And so where do you need to trust more? Look at verse 20. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, he's using a picture here with the word wicked that's really important because what he's saying is this is a person who wants to do right, at least they think they do. They wanna do right, but they don't care if they do it the wrong way. 
right? Their, their favorite expression might be the ends justify the means. That's what the word wicked means. Wicked means that they don't pay any attention to the laws of the land or the laws of God. That's the biblical definition of wicked, that they go by their own rules. I have a buddy of mine who uh, used to work for Comic-Con, and now he, he works for himself. He actually, it's pretty cool. It's called, his company's called Hero Within, and he's got a whole line of what he calls sophisticated geek wear. So if you're like into the Avengers and superheroes and all that stuff, like you can look pretty stylish with, 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 your, with your geekdom. It's awesome. But one of the things that he said, he quoted somebody else this, but man, I thought it was so true. He said is that every villain is a hero in their own story, right? And so if you watch the Avengers, if you watch Endgame, Thanos thinks he's the hero. He's just breaking every law and every rule to do it. That is the biblical term of wicked. And James is saying, if you're willing to break the rules, if you're willing to, to break the laws, then the result of that is gonna be anger. But he's gonna show you what you need to trust instead. See, this person trusts in their ways and their methods, not God's, which is why James says this in verse 21. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, the word that he's talking about is the word of God. And when you say yes to Jesus, the very Holy Spirit of God comes and lives with you and lives in your soul. And I have no idea how that works, but it does. And with the very presence of God in you, you have the very presence of the word of God in you. And that's what he means, that, that when you say yes to Jesus, not only is the word of God something that you read, but it is something that is implanted in you because the spirit of God is in you. And so the way that, that you see that is when you do read the word of God, it is like little spotlights in your reading where, where it is verses that come alive just for you. And so, so James is saying, listen, if... If this describes you, that you want to do the right thing, but the wrong way is okay, then what you need is you need to receive the word that's implanted in you. You need God's word, because through God's word, you see what God's ways are, and you need to trust God's ways. And I'll give you the cliff notes real quick. If you want to know what the whole Bible is summed up in, in my opinion, it's the same word that Caleb had, and it's the word trust. That when you read God's word, he is continually asking you to trust him, to trust his ways, to trust that he is for you, not against you, even though it may seem like everybody and everything is against you, but that God is for you. And it's for his glory and his growth. So you see, when we, when we trust God's word and we trust God's ways over our ways, over our word, we find ourselves doing what God would have us do in the first place. We find ourselves being all that God would have us to be. But when we choose any way over God's way, anger is what springs up. Now, let me give you some real-time examples of Thanos is a little too out of reach for you, right? You've got a meeting for work. Your spouse and kids are obviously the problem because they made you late, right? Spouse and or kids or the dog, whatever, made you late. So you decide the speed limit is a suggestion, not necessarily a law, right? And you start flying to get to work, and you're actually making up lost time. You're feeling pretty good until you hit that road where traffic always slows down. 
and you get behind that car. Probably a Prius, maybe not, (laughs) but probably. And all of a sudden, your life comes to a grinding halt. Does joy flow from your heart at this point? That you're trusting in God's provision of, of this extra time now that you have on the, on, the, on the roads of Asheville? No, you get angry. And who do you get angry at? You get angry at your, at your spouse or your kids or your dog for making you late. Or you get angry at the Prius in front of you. Maybe, maybe not, but most likely the Prius in front of you. Instead of, instead of just realizing, you know, had I last night prepared the lunches or, or done the things to do today so I could leave on time, this would actually be different. You see, anger springs up. Or, 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 or another example, maybe you're a single person. And I'll tell you, Asheville's got to be the hardest town to be single in. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you're single in the culture that we live in today. Because everybody is telling you, you have to give yourself sexually to somebody for them to spend time with you, for them to love you, and to maybe even for them to marry you. And if you're single, that is a temptation that you face. And if you're single, that is a temptation oftentimes that you've given into. And what happens when you do that is when the relationship breaks up or or the relationship breaks off, all of a sudden you're angry. You're angry with yourself for doing that, you're angry with them for taking that from you, for, for, for being like falsely intimate with you. And you're angry with God because here you are again. Or maybe you're in a, in, in, in a business where productivity is the measure of success and the only way that you're gonna get promoted is by numbers. Doesn't matter how you get those numbers and your temptation is to maybe fudge the numbers. Your temptation is to maybe break some rules, maybe even break some laws to get that promotion. And when you do, and you don't get the promotion, you get angry. You get angry at your boss. You get angry at yourself. You see, anger, anger points to our lack of trust in God and trust in his ways. And so to trust God's way that really is the best way to live. To trust God's way really is the best way to live. That's what James is pointing to. Well, look, look at what happens next. When the word of God is implanted and the word of God is trusted, look at verse 22. <clears throat> he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so James gives us this picture that's similar to Caleb's from the book of Numbers, and that's why, that's why I was kind of drawn to, to the events around Caleb's life, because Caleb wasn't just faithful in, in, in trusting in God's promises, that he was faithful in speaking those promises to the people. See, his trust overflowed to his words. His faith overflowed to his actions. Not only did he, did he trust in God's promises, he, he, really, he really spoke to the nation and said, y'all follow me with God. Let's all trust God. He heard and he said, you see, James has a warning if your trust doesn't overflow to your actions. Look at what he says. This is so so weird. Verse 23, he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and, and at once forgets what he was like. 
So here's what James is saying. James is saying it'd be like if you, if you were a person whose faith didn't overflow into your actions, you're like a person who looks in the mirror and walks away, and if you were to show them a picture of themselves, they would go, I have no idea who that is. If you saw, if you heard that and you experienced that, you'd be like, there is something wrong with them. Right, there's something really wrong with them. And James is saying when, when your faith doesn't overflow to your actions, when your trust in who God is and your trust in God's word doesn't overflow to your actions, there is something wrong with you. Now, I'm gonna tell, this confession time, I'm gonna tell you a little, a little thing that happened to me this week. Actually, it was last week. Um, Stacy and I had been to the Biltmore and we had exercised and we were gonna pop over to the little winery area for a little bit. And so uh, we hopped in the car, drove over there and parked in the, the parking lot. And so we go in there, we're in there for about 15, 20 minutes, not very long. And um, um, I'm, I'm going like this. And I'm like, I must have left the keys in the car. Y'all, I can't tell you if I've ever left the keys in the car. I certainly can't tell you the last time. Like I really thought through, have I ever left the keys in the car? That was so weird. And, and that's what I said. I said, I must have left them in the car. And so we started heading back. And, you know, you're doing that thing where you, you kind of retrace your steps to make sure they didn't fall out of your pocket. And so, you know, I'm kind of looking, looking, don't see them, don't see them. We get in the parking lot. Y'all, I did not only leave my keys in the car. I left them in the ignition. I didn't only leave them in the, in the ignition. I left the car running. <laughs> right? Okay, what you're thinking in the expressions on your faces is exactly what James is saying. If your faith doesn't overflow to your actions, that's what you think. There is something wrong with that guy. That's exactly what I thought. There is something wrong with me. What were we doing? Now, all, in all fairness, we do have a hybrid. And so, like, I didn't hear the engine when we got out. Or else I would have. But it was definitely on when we came back uh, 20 minutes later. You see, your faith is designed to overflow into your actions. And when you say you trust in God and yet your actions don't show it, y'all, to James, it just doesn't make any sense. But James has a better way. Look at verse 25. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James says, listen, when you look at the word of God, and by faith you do what God asks you to do, there is a reward. And that reward is a blessing. And, and what's interesting is James also uses the word perseveres, which means, which means this isn't a one and done deal. It means this action of trusting and having faith in who God is and what his word says, it is an everyday thing. It is an every hour thing. And at times it feels like it is an every minute thing. That's what perseverance is. And so not only is, is trusting in God's way the best way to live. Now, y'all bear with me. This is cheesy, but James said it. I'm just quoting it. That trusting in God's way is the hashtag blessed way to live, right? Right? Little cheesy, little play on words. But here's what James is saying. And this is actually why, what I find fascinating. And this is why I went for a little bit of cheese here. The word that he uses for blessed, there are multiple words to, to say the word blessed in, in, in uh, the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This one has a very particular meaning that means happy. Happiness is the reward. Now, I know in Christian circles, we like to say, Fred, you mean joy, don't you? Yes, but I also mean happiness. Happiness is the reward of when your faith 
overflow into your actions. See, James is saying when you trust God's way, as seen in his word, there's a reward, a reward to it. And the reward is this, that your work becomes happy work. Now, he also used the word reward. Now, remember, a reward comes when you finish the test. You may not get the reward during the test. So it may come at the very end. It may come at the very end of your life. It may come at the very end of the challenge. You don't know. And if you're going through something right now where happiness isn't the byproduct, then I refer you to that other word, persevere. Because happiness is coming. And so for, for, for those of you who are in any of the scenarios that I talked about, waiting, waiting for the right person to marry you without giving yourself away, Waiting for that person becomes happy when you've got a spouse who's walking the faith with you, not dragging you down. That's a happy life. You know, I was uh, at a store a couple of days ago and was talking to this guy, um, and uh, he was telling me he's getting married next week, and he was all excited about it. Um, He said, but I'm cutting some stuff out of my life because I know the first year of marriage uh, is going to be really hard. And I was like, dude, it doesn't have to be. When you're walking with somebody and they share your faith, it certainly does make it easier. Not that it won't be challenging, but it still makes it easier. Waiting for the right person could be a really happy marriage. Missing the promotion because you didn't bend the rules makes for a happy job because you have something called integrity. That who you are behind closed doors is the same person that you are out in public. That's integrity, and that makes for a happy life. Now, James has a final section to show us kind of what happy can look like. Look at verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but, de- but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So what James is saying, he's saying, listen, guys. And girls, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. When you say yes to Jesus and you start living by faith, the first thing that's going to be affected is your mouth. Now, the last thing might be your driving foot, but the first thing is your mouth. And your words are going to change. Because here's what happens. When you start trusting in God and trusting in his ways, you know what? Complaining turns to thankfulness. Because you realize God knows what he's doing. Grumbling turns into gratitude. Because your words change. You become thankful. You become gracious. Mercy comes out of your mouth instead of condemnation. You see, that's what happens when your words change. And maybe even the words that you use change. Now, before I became a Christian, I became a Christian my senior year in college. Before I became a Christian, I had a pretty foul mouth. Right? That may be hard to imagine, but I cussed like a sailor. Everybody around me cussed like a sailor. I don't, why did, did sailors cuss? Where'd that come from? <laughs> I just realized, what, what is that? But y'all were all with me. You knew exactly what I was saying. But, but, but I did. I had some pretty foul language. And, and when I became a Christian, about six months after becoming a Christian, I got into a small group, and, and the leader of that group, he started discipling me and really just took me under his wing. And it was brilliant. I don't know if he meant to do this, but I got it. I think he did mean to do this. Because he never told me, Fred, dude, you gotta stop cussing. 
what he told me one day, and he was talking in the context of comedians, and he goes, you know what I've, I've noticed about comedians? That the really smart ones don't cuss. The lazy ones use, a, use foul language, because anybody will laugh if, if, if you cuss. But the really brilliant ones, they use better words. And he goes, the, the other ones, they just cuss because they're too lazy. And I was like, oh, I, I think he's talking to me. I think, I think I need to start thinking through my words better. And so I did. I started thinking through the words that I used. And what I noticed is that anytime I cussed, it was, it was because I was feeling insecure and wanted to impress the person across from me. I wanted to make it sound like I had power. I wanted to make it sound like I was with them. I mean, it was just all these insecurities. And as I came to be more comfortable with who I was in Jesus, that went away. Right? And so, so your words, your words start to change. You see, trusting God and living by faith and living in trust of his word and what he says, you're, God gets a hold of your tongue. But look at what else changes in verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction." You see, widows and orphans in the time of Jesus were the people that were the most susceptible to someone taking advantage of them. If they were a widow, that means they literally had no family. They had no children. They had no spouse. They had no husband. They were all on their own, and they literally had no one to help them. Orphans were the same way. They had no one to help them. Which means oftentimes the church would step in and help them. And see, when, when our trust in God overflows into our actions, it overflows into those who need help. And what we do is, and what you do when, you're, when, you're, when your faith overflows to your actions is you help those who have no one to help them. You help those who have no one to help them. Because in Jesus' time, there wasn't social services, there wasn't anything like that. They relied on the, on the help of the church. And now we do that too, and we do it in multiple ways. But one way we do it too is that we actually put the primary, we put the family as the primary care provider. And so if a person comes to us and says, hey, I need help, uh, I don't have, you know, I need help, I can't make bills, or I can't do whatever it is they need help on, our first question is, do you have any family that can help you? And if their answer is, yeah, but that's gonna require a really awkward conversation, I don't wanna have to oftentimes humble myself and go to them and ask for help. We tell them, guess what? You need to go to them and ask for help because you've got people. We've got people coming to us that don't have people. That's who we need to help. You go have the, I'll even coach you through that awkward conversation. I'll help you have that awkward conversation, but family first. And then for those who don't have anybody to help, we step in. We do Room in the Inn here. And so Room in the Inn is an organization that helps women who are experiencing homelessness move into sustainable housing. And different churches throughout the year host them, and we host them twice a year. And they come here, and they sleep here, and we feed them, we feed them dinner, we feed them breakfast, and then we pack a lunch and take them back downtown to, to Homeward Bound so they can, they can go about their day. And we do that for a week. And if you want to help out with that, we need volunteers because it is an all-hands-on-deck thing for sure. And you can go to our website. We also do a car care ministry designed for, for, for women, um, uh, single moms who, who just need help just doing basic car care maintenance. 
We've got a team of people that love to do that. And what's really fun is, is even the, the older men are teaching the younger man how to take care of cars. My son knows how to change oil. I don't know how to change oil. But Matt taught him how to change oil, and I'm so thankful for that. So not only do we have room in the end, we have the car care ministry. This summer is our third summer, I think, to help at the Ledgewood Apartments during the summer, right down the street. And they have a feeding program where they feed the kids because this school right across the street that we love dearly, every child there is on a free or reduced lunch. And so oftentimes the, the, the most food they get during the day is at school and then they send them home during the summer and there's nothing for them. And so the school makes the lunch and they drop it off at the clubhouse at the apartment building. We're just there to make sure that it gets distributed to the kids. And they get a good hot lunch every day. And we're just there. And to this year, we've, we've only done it one day on Wednesdays during the summer. Now we're doing it Wednesdays and Fridays. And so if you want to help out with that, I would love to have you be there. It is a great opportunity. And see, when you help those who have no one to help, this is what James is talking about. It is happy work. When you help those who have no one to help them, it is happy work. When it's done from faith that overflows. But there's one more way that your trust overflows and it goes beyond your words and it goes beyond helping others and it is just about you. Because look at what James says. If you weren't feeling punched enough, listen to this. He says, uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now remember, last week when we started this wholehearted series, we talked about James, what he wants for, for the people that he wrote this to and what he wants for you and what I want for you as your pastor is that oftentimes we live with our feet planted in two different places. We live with our one foot planted in the truth of God's word and who he is, and then we live in another world where it's the wisdom of those outside the faith. And oftentimes we, we shift our weight between one or the other. James says, no, 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 live with both feet firmly planted in who God is and what he has promised and what he is doing for you. That is a wholehearted faith. And James is saying, when you do that and your actions are from this, this place of faith and trust, the word for this is you become more holy. Your actions become more filled with God's presence. They become more complete. They become more whole. And James is saying, when you do that, you're actually unstained and undefiled from those outside of the faith because that is what holiness is. And when you trust God as seen through his word and it overflows into every area of your life, what happens is there becomes no corner in your life where God's light doesn't shine. That you're not perfect, but your heart is completely open to God. And there's no place that, that you've kept that door closed. But that he can, he can have control of your finances. He can have control of your time. He can have control of your affections. That he can have control of what you do with your body. That's what holiness looks like. So let's do a little evaluation. All right? James has listed a whole bunch of to-dos. How you doing? All right? Let me just recap. If you've been tuned out, let me recap what he said. He said, just to start off, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's three Three to-dos right there, right? He said, submit to the law. Don't be wicked. Submit to the law of the land and submit to God's law. He said to receive the word. 
that's been implanted in you. In other words, submit yourself to God's word, to be doers of that word. He said to bridle your tongue. In other words, control your words. And yeah, I saw some of the expressions on your face. I know this is hitting you, right, at one time or another. He said to help those who have no one to help them. And he said to keep yourself unstained from the world. And when you hear words like this, the tendency is to think, all right, I gotta do better. I gotta do better tomorrow. I gotta do better today. But remember, you don't have a doing problem. You have a trust problem. That's your issue. And so the question is, where do you need to trust God? Where do you need to trust his promises more? This isn't about doing better, it's about trust. And here's the joy, here's what takes the pressure off, is that we have this gospel, the fact that this good news that Jesus died for us, so that we could have this pure and true and right and good and personal relationship with the God who, who loves you and the God who made you. What that means is that we all have areas where we have to trust more, right? We all do. I do. You do. And that gospel, what it does is it paves a direct line between you and God and hedged on both sides of that path are complete acceptance and unconditional forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. And so no matter what your lack of faith is or where your lack of faith is, where your lack of trust is, you can call it sin and take it to the feet of Jesus. Take it to God because of what Jesus has done and you get no shame, you get no condemnation, you get the help that you need in times of trouble. That's our gospel. And so if you need to do better on any of these, then you need to get on that road and go directly to God and yield to his presence. Yield to his complete trust. You need to confess your lack of trust and repent by trusting again. And let your trust overflow to doing. Because let me tell you what happens if we can do this. If we're a church that can do this, and I believe that we are, I believe we can always be better, but I believe that we are. But if we can let our trust in God overflow to our actions, and if we can confess it to each other, confess it to him and repent of it and come back to trusting him, then what'll happen is those that have no help and those that have no one to help them in Asheville will find help in you, in you. It means that you will have a happier life. It means that your words will be full of gratitude and thanksgiving and seeing what God is doing in the world, not anger. In short, y'all, if, if our trust overflows to our actions, what'll happen is that we will get a little taste of heaven right now because that's what heaven will be like. And what'll also happen is that the city of Asheville will get a little taste of heaven through you. And y'all, that'll change a city. And so church, let's trust our Lord together. Let's leave this building with more trust and faith than we walked in. Because then you will do exactly what it is that God wants you to do. And he will get the glory and it will be for your good. Let's 